Not long ago, we talked about church libraries and how these resources can help Christians find the best books, including, if not now, then in the future, Christian-made fantastical fiction. What then about public libraries? How can Christians best discern and enjoy this resource? Today, we are speaking with a public library director who also happens to be a prolific Christian novelist of sci-fi, fantasy, steampunk, paranormal suspense, and beyond, Steve Raza, and he is the first Steve for our new saga of epic episodes that we are assembling for September here on Fantastical Truth. Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. Here we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish Lore Haven. I'm also the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell. And no offense to our guest today, but my favorite librarian will always be Conan the Librarian from the 1980s Weir Al Yankovic movie UHF. But this is episode 128, How Can Christian Fans Engage Their Local Libraries? And yes, we'll be joined by librarian and author Steve Raza. This episode is part one of our Steve Saga, a new epic trilogy for the month of September. Today we have the first Steve, and in our next episode we will have an additional Steve. And then for the trilogy ender, we will have a finale Steve. And then who knows, the franchise may be ripe for expansion with even more Steves beyond that. We'll have to see if we can get even more sequels, maybe a reboot or two uh, out of this franchise. We're looking forward to taking a behind-the-scenes look in uh, Christian publishing, where these stories come from, how they get shared, and that's what Steve Raza, who makes many of these stories himself, will be sharing today at the public library level. Boy, that would be funny if like, we, we put this filter on the show that from now on, your name must be Steve to join. First name, last name, last name, Stevenson. Steve, you know, obviously you're Steven, which uh, I didn't even think about you as Steve. Did, was, did anyone ever call you Steve, Steven? Every once in a while, and it may come up as we go forward into this series, uh, whereas another uh, cinematic universe of stories has a lot of Chris's among the cast. It just seems that uh, Christian publishing, for some reason, has a lot of Steve's. Uh, but I will note, too, that in the Marvel Universe, a surprising amount of superheroes have the name Steve. Steve Rogers, Stephen Strange, even Moon Knight, I think, has the name Steven. So uh, obviously, there's just something about the name uh, Steven or Steve uh, that makes you into a hero. Speaking of which, uh, speaking of Christian publishing, let's go real quick to our cover sponsor for this episode. Once again, it is Enclave Publishing. Uh, that is our cover sponsor here, focusing on the novel Flight by Kristen Young, which is coming out on September the 13th. Here's the cover description. On the cusp of graduation, Cadence is finally feeling in control. She's about to become one of the prestigious elites working in the Hall of Love. Plus, she can take her place as a full member of the underground sirens who meet secretly in Love City. She will finally be able to use her memory skills for good instead of reporting people as a watcher. But a dangerous trap is set, throwing Cadence into unwelcome and unfamiliar territory. Someone in the collective remembers things that could very well get her killed. The muse is by her side after all, but will she be protected when someone powerful wants her dead? Enclave Publishing presents Flight by Kristen Young, the third book in the Collective Underground series. It's available September 13, wherever books are sold. It's also available in audiobook format from Oasis Audio. You can get the links to Amazon and ChristianBook.com to purchase Flight, as well as the Audible link for the upcoming audiobook. Flight by Kristen Young, 
get those links in our show notes for this episode 128 or be going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. I suddenly hear some triumphant sounding March music composed by uh, the late Jerry Goldsmith and uh, warp engines in the distance uh, blinking into that little shine of light into the distant blackness of space. Let's see who's arriving via starship. Library director and novelist Steve Raza has just arrived via Federation Starship, traveling at just over Warp 5. Steve Raza doesn't slay monsters, but he defeats ward count goals and vanquishes overdue books. He's the author of many novels of science fiction and fantasy, including the award-winning tales Broken Sight, Mercury on Guard, and Mercury at Risk. When he's not writing, he is running a library in Wyoming. Find his stories at steveraza.com and find Steve Raza himself in the studio. Steve, thanks for joining us to be our first Steve of the Steve Saga. Thanks for having us, Stephen, or having me here with you guys, I should say. Yeah, it's great to see you. Zach? So, uh, so tell us, Steve, how did you discover biblical truth in fantastical stories? So how, how did you, and which came first, and when did you accept aslan as your personal lion and savior as we like to say (laughs) well that's a really loaded question um well you know i had always been sci-fi space opera nerd geek whatever you want to call it uh you know grew up watching next generation had watched some of the original star trek loved star wars so i can fan about both of those equally and share the joy but really, the tie between the faith part didn't come. I was working on some ideas when I kind of came back to the Christian faith, I guess you could say, when I was in college. And most people have stories about people losing their faith in college, and mine was the opposite oh, for that. Because so I was reconstruction. A, there you reconstruction. go. That's, that's how there you do you it. Go. Yes. Yeah. It was a, um, a journey from getting done with Vatican II Catholicism that I grew up in as, you know, slightly better than CNE during those days and then not much of anything and then getting into the more evangelical side of things later eventually becoming a lutheran but that's a long story you swam the tiber back the opposite direction very much a contrary and i appreciate it right i tend to do that um but one of the things that really got to me the two biggest influences i would say especially on my space opera writing were timothy zahn's heir to the empire trilogy from the secular side of things and from the Christian side of things, Chris Wally's Lamb Among the Stars. Oh, yes. Really, my absolute really, favorite. really, that's the one where I went, wow, you can actually do this and make it make it good. <laughs> not to mention it's an end times perspective. It's not often seen in uh, Christian futuristic fiction. Uh, Zach's right. often referenced this underappreciated, lesser known series as being a rare example of post-millennial uh, prophecy right. type, uh, type mm-hmm. series. Yeah, and it's you know it's not the you know eschatology I particularly hold to, but that's what I love about it is that it's so different and it's so like imaginative and it's just this whole other universe basically that it's fun to consider. And the other one I almost forgot about and I'm kicking myself for almost forgetting about is Kathy Tyre's Firebird series. Those two were the biggest influences on leaning me toward that uh biblical truth in a fantastical story world. Yeah. Um, again, they both take these suppositions of, you know, what if something different happened with the faith that we all kind of take for granted and then just run with it and create these two really amazing uh, story universes. Yeah. Okay. So now as a Trekkie, I'm sure you've got your top 10 or top two or three 
uh, Star Trek Next Gen episodes. And I, I've Ooh. got mine, but what 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 are yours? Well, definitely best of both worlds. Yeah, I knew those two say that. back to back. Yeah, I mean, it's, yes, you kind of have to. <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's one of the articles of the creed of the next generation. <laughs> Part one mental. was the first Star Trek TNG episode I remember actually seeing. So oh, wow. what a high oh, that's point! Cool. To, Jump yeah. into the to deep discover end. the series. Right? Yes. Uh, let me think. What are some other ones I really liked? Um, I can't remember the name of the two-parter, but I always got a kick. It wasn't the best episode, but I always got a kick out of the one where Picard was pretending he was among a, among a bunch of space pirates. I can't remember. It was the one that had to do with like some sort of Vulcan, ancient Vulcan psionic weapon that would like use your own fear and anger to kill you if somebody zapped you with it or something like that. Uh, okay, it was man. a really kind of fun and different Gambit. Back, back set of episodes. Uh, Gambit, yeah. is that what it was called? Okay. Yeah, I'm just looking it was, at memoryalpha.fandom yeah. because I'm, I'm he, not much of a Trek nerd. <laughs> something about like Picard had a uh, archaeologist friend who died or something, I think, and he kind of picked up the mystery. But I liked it because, you know, we'd had multiple seasons of Picard's Dixon Hill on the holodeck yes. solving mysteries there. And this was like he finally got to apply it to real world. And you could just kind of see he was like, yay. And he was undercover. And he's got that, uh, you know, archaeologist bent. Okay, now this is yeah. interesting. I just, uh, this is a real deep nerd dive here, but I just pulled this up on Memory Alpha, and the teleplay was by Naren Shankar, who was the showrunner for the Expanse series. Oh, that that's just why that finished oh, on Amazon. That so that's cool. really interesting to see that he got started with this. You know, I don't remember this episode. I'm going to have to go back and watch this now. Um, I had just binge watched really cool. some Next Generation this summer and earlier this year, I think. And picked up on it again. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. And the other one, of course, that I really like is, must be Chain of Command. Again, it's one of those ones where they're like doing their Black Ops mission and Jellico's in charge of the Enterprise and things. I just thought it was really, I, I like some of these character deep dive type of things. So this whole thing with Riker is used to Picard as his commander. Now he's got this other yeah. dude in charge. And Riker's like, how do I, how do I Riker? With, yeah with this guy <laughs> with, around with this guy, like, yeah no, you're gonna have to get in the chair the front way this time son you're yeah. just gonna have to do it <laughs> so Je- okay. jellico is the was the temporary uh, jellico has become a meme now he tells yes. bad jokes in the there's memes. a there's yeah. a whole uh twitter channel i follow called like jellico star trek or something and it's just I've like seen all a few these of like random like <laughs> like insane kind of things that he might have it said. sounds like yeah. a goofy name that's why it took <laughs> off and became a meme i guess and it's just like out of the rest everybody at the clip is like what i've seen a few of those they're pretty good but i think those you know it's funny that i think those are the ones i remember the most are the two-part ones just because maybe it's just because it's an extended story and they pack a whole lot more in but i think those three are really my top ones that i can remember going wow those are cool and i want to see it again nice so those stories plus the books that you read and we'll we'll get to uh more of your stories in the raza verse which is my name for it i don't think it's your name i don't think it's my website good but i'm just gonna call it that yeah it's all it's all connected folks it's all part of the steve raza multiverse Uh, but it's not only Star Trek, but stories like the Timothy Zahn novels, uh, the Kathy oh, yeah. Tires books as well uh, that helped uh, push you down this path. And by the way, now that we're into the Steve saga, uh, Steve one here has just accidentally uh, planted an Easter egg for the origin story of Kathy Tires books uh, that we get to in our next episode. Huh. Uh, that'll be episode two of the Steve saga. So stay tuned. Uh, definitely pay more of your theater dollars for this ever expanding franchise. Uh, <laughs> So, Steve, in addition to making books, you are also helping to loan books. Uh, you are yeah. the director of the public library there in Wyoming. 
uh, which leads us to uh, chapter one here. Why do public libraries still matter in an internet age? Uh, we want to talk about uh, the public library as an idea, as a resource that Christians can still enjoy. Uh, despite some controversies going on, uh, I view the public library as still an instrument of God's common grace. What's your take on that, especially when, well, I can just stay at home and order all my books from Amazon or right, maybe yeah. pirate books or get them for free, or why do we still need public libraries? Part of it is that sometimes you have people like me who, as much as I think ebooks are a good thing and it's really handy that people can read them, I just can't read ebooks. It's a weird, weird thing. It's not, it's not that they're not good. Because the same story to me, I can read it in paperback and love it, but I try to read it in the ebook form. I just can't. I don't know if it's a concentration thing or what it is, because I could read blogs and shorter things all day. Just something about the way I'm wired, I, it's got to be a paperback for me. And it's not even like a philosophical difference type of thing. It's just a, yeah, something about it I start doing, I'm like, I can't pay attention. Or I, get, I don't know if I get distracted or what, but when it's a book, I can really hunker down and dive into it. So I think there's still a lot of people who are like that. Another thing to consider too is that as good as ebooks are, there really isn't it really from what I can tell hasn't supplanted children's books because with a lot of children's books especially for early elementary age, you know, there are those big wide format but thin ones where you pop them open and there's just gorgeous artwork and stuff like that. Um and good stories in it too, of course. But it's you, you can't really replicate that big open it on your lap with your kid format when it's on a device that tends to be this small unless you have a tablet that's like you know 15 inches wider <laughs> or, or, or it's the year 2035 and the ebooks have gone holographic but there the, even right. then that would not be tangible like you've got this hologram right. technology uh it, it's not something you can touch it's not an object that takes up space that literally feels weighty and it adds importance and significance to uh, the joy of reading Right. And I think that's part of it for a lot of people, too. And so, you know, just just anecdotally from our own experience at our small library in Buffalo, Wyoming, up in the northeast part of the state, we have seen more of a shift to ebook and a decline in regular book reading. But the biggest decline really has been in nonfiction versus fiction. Like our fiction stats for physical books are fairly steady. They're not really spiking and they're not dropping either. But nonfiction has been on a kind of steady decline, at least for us. Interesting. Uh, and it's not too surprising when we start looking into what kind of books you're talking about, because really people are still reading biographies, history, politics, things like that. The books they aren't reading and used to read a lot of are craft books, cookbooks, even self-help to some extent. Those, Those I feel are like, all things you can get on the internet. Exactly, exactly. Now you can get a biography on the internet, but it's way, it's still, it's close enough, I feel like, to fiction in the storytelling sense than something like that in a how-to book would be, if that makes sense. It's more like the, the biographies and other things like, and historical books have really leaned into telling it more like a narrative story than a textbook. Uh, mm -hmm. to explain a little bit. Uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, if you've never read any of his history stuff, I highly recommend his books. Um, he's got some really good ones that I've used for inspiration on various things. But again, it's so we've seen that kind of shift. You know, We have seen, especially in the past couple of years with COVID, more of a lean toward eBooks. It's become a much bigger part of our circulation locally. And part of that is just because um, about half of that circulation has been in audio. You know, the audio explosion has really been something we've noticed too. So I feel like it's 
I feel like it's one of those things where it's becoming a mix. You know, ebooks have supplanted part of physical reading habits, but not replaced all of it. And they probably won't replace all of it. I think it'll just become another thing that libraries offer. And it may vary where you are and what part of the country you live in and what audience there is as to how much of it. But I don't think it's going to be an ever replace it kind of thing. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me that ebooks are, you know, you find that a challenge. I, I've read a lot of studies about this that, you know, with a physical book, you have a 3D sense of space, you know, front to back, top to bottom. And you can actually remember, like your your brain can remember where in the book, in like a 3D coordinate, you read something. Whereas oh. with an ebook, it's just a, it's a flat 2D experience. And so there's no sense of like, where in the book was that thing? And we actually remember things much more easily and accurately from physical books than with ebooks. And, you know, I say this as someone who has hundreds of Kindle books <laughs> uh, and I, and I love, I love having Kindles and that a Kindle was the first uh, device, like electronic device I let my own kids have because I'm yeah. like, well, all you can do is read a book on it. So that's fine by me. There you go. But you know, it's, uh, it's funny to think now about, uh, we, we've refer- referenced this a couple times before. There was this uh, viral commercial in the 1990s by AT&T, and it was kind of like predicting the technologies of the future. And one of them it predicted was eBooks, but they didn't predict tablets. They predicted like books that you download to a computer and not a personal computer at home, but a computer in the library. Huh. And so it was, it was really interesting how they, they couldn't imagine, not only could they not imagine mobile devices, they couldn't imagine people not going to libraries. And I always, yeah. I look back on that now and I'm like, it's easy to kind of laugh at it, but I'm like, no, I really like that. I, I like that even yeah. 30 years ago, people said, hey, the library is still going to be part of our modern world. And they were actually correct about that. I mean, my, my wife takes our kids all the time to the library because of those children's books that you mentioned. And because, you know, a lot of times the children's books are really short. So it's True. like, why, why would we you know, buy 20 of these little, you know, magic treehouse books and we can just rent or sorry, check out all of these books. Well, and that's the other thing too, about the library aspect, like, you know, even with the physical books and your access to them, the return on investment, which is a goofy term, but yeah, it makes sense compared to usually what your tax dollars are for supporting a library is really, really good. I mean, in our, <laughs> in our County where, you know, and a lot of other counties where the library doesn't get a lot of tax money, uh, I mean, you know, my property tax bill just came the other day, and I think my share of the property tax bill for the library is like 17 bucks mm. for the year. <laughs> it's like, okay, I go do one checkout, and I've gotten my return on investment. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, think about people who check out, even if you just check out a book a month, 12 books a year times the cost of whatever that would cost in an ebook and whatever. I mean, you're probably earning some of that, a good chunk of that back. Uh, and then, you know, of course, like you said, families who get multiple children's books each time they come, you're definitely getting a good deal on that. Well, maybe that could become the new slogan of public libraries, the library, you're already paying for it. That's something that our libraries have always <laughs> pushed. Um, but, you know, the other thing too, is that, you know, even on the book and circulation side of things, I think one thing that people don't often think about, and I, I know that other libraries have gone, done a good job of pushing it, but you know, there's all these other things, and I don't mean extra programs, but I mean like other services that libraries reside. Like in our small town, if you need technical help with something that you can't figure out to do, you've got either a computer shop with the owner and one employee who probably wants you to pay for it, or 
you can swing by the library and see if we can scan something and email it for you, or mm. if we can help you figure out how to get this form printed and downloaded. Cause the rest of local government is not going to do that. It's just not their, what they're supposed to do really. So a lot of the visitors we get for help with other things, even if they're not reading something, it's, I've got to scan and fax this document to get it signed for a real estate thing, or my bank needs this, or the health insurance has to have this stuff. So that's what we spend a lot of time doing, too. I must confess, Steve, I have not been to the public library in our area for quite some time, but that's mainly a job hazard for me. Uh, PublishingLoreHaven.com, we get plenty of books. Uh, (laughs) We've had some physical copies mailed here and there, but mostly uh, just to simplify the review uh, process, we do end up getting uh, those digital books. And I have often wondered, a little behind the scenes here, but I've often wondered, does the act of reading them digitally, because we want to get them to the reviewer who's most likely to enjoy the book, does this in some way risk affecting the review? Because as Zach was mentioning, it's an electronic copy. Uh, It doesn't take physical space. Uh, You don't have these really abstract 3D coordinates in your head about where exactly on the page uh, you get to the Misty Mountains. You know, there's there's almost a mimicry of 3D space, at least for a story. Uh, And I I don't think that for our review team members, this may be me overthinking it. I doubt that they do. But I have noticed, though, like I I can go between ebooks and physical books, but I prefer the fiction in physical form if I can get it. I think that this does enhance the experience. I think for a narrative similar to a biography, as y'all were mentioning, I think the narrative does lend itself better to uh, an object in 3D space, whereas I do a lot better if I'm reading ebooks. I do a lot better if it's a nonfiction, because now we're talking about theology or philosophy or something like that like that to me uh, takes a different side of the brain Uh, it's a different way of thinking uh, than you would if you were going uh, from a point a to point b a narrative so that may be at least for some of us out there i'm guessing that that may be the difference but i do remember though going to the public library before ebooks before a whole lot of internet and everything that is how i discovered uh, the uh, humor writer dave barry uh my library would just have several of his books i would just cycle through them uh they also had calvin and hobbes books so before we bought our own we could enjoy some of those at the library i also later in life uh, when i wasn't sure if i wanted to buy harry potter books because you know they might still be evil after all it was kind of taking a chance here you could get them from the public library and when book seven came out, I got in line to uh, read book seven. I think I was the 37th place in line or something like that. But they must have ordered 37 books uh, because I got to mine pretty quickly. And then we were talking earlier about Star Trek. That's how I got through a lot of these Star Trek seasons. Oh, Before nice. the streaming, I didn't want to pirate it, but you could go to your library and you could get the DVD copies uh, from Deep Space Nine seasons one through seven. So that's how I first got to uh, to enjoy that series. And it just it just illustrates that although there may be controversies and, you know, the idea of libraries may get in the news uh, for different reasons that are controversial. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, This is still a great tool that Christian families, readers, fans of any kind can enjoy uh, in order to engage with these stories as part of your community uh, rather than just as an individual. And, of course, save some money doing it because, as you said, you're already paying for it. Yeah, exactly. One other thought about nonfiction books. So uh, I saw this uh, this post the other day that went viral, and I'm sure this guy got all this hate mail. He's like, hey, pro tip, if there's a nonfiction book you want to buy, just go to YouTube and type in the author's name and the title of their book, and they've probably given a speech. That, like, they've probably given a talk 
that's the you know the top points of their book in 30 minutes or less and hey you got that for free there we go i saved you a book purchase i mean i'm like okay i wonder if that actually works but if it does that that's either a brilliant life hack or that's uh that's something but it won't work for me yeah. none of my speeches from my book are on youtube you <laughs> might get them at a homeschool conference here and there but not on youtube yeah, as far as kidding. i know <laughs> well i, I have it, to be a big author yeah i don't really have a preferred format for nonfiction, but i my main thing is i like to take notes like i'd like to take notes in the book with a pen which is a big no-no for libraries. And yeah, Steve, we frown you can on tell that. us your, we frown you, on that. I'm sure you've got some stories there. <laughs> Somebody using a, a burrito as a bookmark, that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't we've never, have we have to ask I remember that. that one. I've never, never seen the burrito one, but you know, we, there's a story I always tell. There's a, there was a comic series cartoon called unshelved. And it was a librarian and a cartoon artist who were buddies and they wrote it. And it's like, <laughs> Most people who would check it out or read it wouldn't really get the humor unless you've worked in a library. Oh. It's for a library. It's so spot on and so hysterical. But anyway, they came to a conference of ours here in Wyoming back in like 2010, I think, is where I first met them or heard of them and bought their stuff. They're like, okay, we ask this question at every conference we go to for librarians in every state. What is the weirdest thing you've ever found as a bookmark? And people would throw up their hands and they're like, Okay, now here's our question. How many of you have found a strip of bacon as a bookmark? And in the back <laughs> of the room, a couple of the librarians from a bigger library, their hands shot up. And he go and they started laughing, and we're laughing, and they go, every state we go to, every library conference, including Hawaii, somebody says they found bacon as a bookmark. Regular and we're just, turkey. And we're just like, we're like, wow, what a way to ruin books and also waste bacon. Right. Yeah, how how would you leave that bacon uneaten? Like, I what? hope that it's. But we've found so we found uh, <laughs> the one that recurs the most that's odd is people will take out books about you know scavenge scrounging for different kinds of mushrooms in the wild, and we'll get the books back and there'll be mushrooms as bookmarks. Oh, ugh. which usually is okay because they're really dried out and so they don't stain the pages. <laughs> so, and yeah, so that's okay. That's the funny one there. Every once in a while, let's see. I used to occasionally get. CD books in the big heavy cases, they'd come back and pop it open. There'd be an unused cigarette in there. I'm like, oh, oddly specific. Okay. I know. I don't know why. I mean, it's not like you're going to save your place in there or something. Yeah. That's um, very strange. So that's the weird ones there. The least favorite one that we have at our library is toilet paper. Uh, so then you know, it's like I mean, we know where you were. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, there was a whole Seinfeld episode about that. I remember. Yeah. We don't, we don't like that one. That's the one where we start making like, you know, if you walk by the front desk and you hear a librarian making a fake vomit noise, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're probably, we're probably mocking you too. More than likely we are. Just going to throw that out there. Let's break for a moment and go to our second sponsor for this episode. Uh, this is a newcomer to Fantastical Truth, author Candy J. Wyatt, who has written a novel that she describes as E.T. meets How to Train Your Dragon. Here's the cover description. Harley will do anything to keep his new pal safe, but a hungry dragon needs to eat and the government is hot on their tail. Harley Meggers seen E.T. and knows what the government will do to mythical creatures. There's no way he's about to let his newfound friend fall in the hands of an NSA agent. When the dragon starts setting fires and eating livestock, the choice may be taken from him. Steria is only interested in filling her tummy and spending time with Harley and his friends. After all, they're the ones who woke her and called her from her egg. When the agent tries to capture her, she's confined to the farm where she's safe, but without sufficient food. She'll do anything to protect herself and Harley, even if it means she'll go hungry. 
An Unexpected Adventure is the fun first book in the middle grade fantasy Myth Coast Adventures trilogy. If you like clean entertainment full of adventure and mischief, then you will love Candy J. Wyatt's unique trilogy. E.T. meets How to Train Your Dragon in an Unexpected Adventure. The audiobook is narrated by award-winning narrator Dave Cruz. You can get that and the book and more information in our show notes for this episode 128 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Well, I love that there is a fandom for librarians, the, this unshelved comics. It's like the Dilbert of librarians. It, is, it really is. Yeah. And see, I really associated with it because I am still the only male employee in our library system. In this comic, Dewey, you know, of course, it's a little on the nose there, but Dewey is the male librarian. He's the only guy who works in the library, except for the library mascot who never takes off his costume. We don't have one of those, <laughs> but that's... He's yeah, <laughs> but anyway, he's and he's like the Star Wars fan. There's a great strip in there that I keep threatening my coworker, my staff now that I'm going to do someday if we don't have enough people on. He had skipped out on a staff meeting, required one, by being sick at home. Well, the joke turned out to be that everyone who came there had a meal together and they all got food poisoning. So the next day he shows up and he's the only one there because everybody's out with food poisoning. And normally in that situation, you would just close the library and put a sign up and say, sorry, health emergency, you know, thing like that. But this being a comic, they played it as he had to run the library all day by himself. So he goes out the front door where all the people are waiting and says, thank you for the way, you know, we've had a, a bit of an emergency. But we're going to do our best to serve you today. But before anyone comes in, I just want to ask this question. Who was the captain of the Firefly class ship Serenity? And this guy in the back goes, Malcolm Reynolds. And he's like, you're the first one today. <laughs> so he spent the rest of the strip asking sci-fi fandom questions to determine who the next person to use the library was. And he was taking them one at a time. And so the boss is the next day, the boss doesn't know any of this. And she's like, Oh, it's really great that you did this. And he's like, well, you know, it was rough, but we made it work. He's like, I, she's like, I really appreciate it. But then she's reading the comment card and she's like, why does this one say well worth the wait? He's like, Oh, I gotta go check the, <laughs> just so, so I keep threatening I'm going to do that someday. I'd be like, you have to answer next generation questions before you come in the door. We'd have like three people. We're going to have to link to this in the show notes. That's a fantastic uh, yeah. fandom, like within a fandom there. It is so. really. So we've already set up chapter two of this discussion. Uh, Steve, you've been talking about the general benefits of the public library and some of the insanity that you found at your public library, helping direct your public library. How do you personally, Steve, help share great books at the library you direct? And I guess we'll start with how you got into this field in the first place, because you and I have both been in the past in local journalism, mm -hmm. uh, but you moved from that into uh, being a, an employee at the public library and now director there in uh, Buffalo, Wyoming. Yep. So I got fired. And that's the, that's the short version yeah, <laughs> and went yeah. hunting, went hunting that for happens. a job. And you know, the jobs at the time were like, you could go work in the oil field and make a lot of money, or you could work in fast food or grocery store and make not very much money. And both of those were kind of terrible. And both I actually, greasy too. I fell in, yeah, right. I fell into this, um, small mom and pop print store, print shop, where I learned like some of the old offset press mechanical electrical presses and stuff like that, but also did stuff with uh, InDesign and Corel Draw and that kind of thing. And that was for like a few months, but at the same time, a uh, part-time position opened up at the library. And I'd volunteered at a small community library back in Maine when I was still newspaper reporting. Uh, 
Um, so I had a little bit of that, and I was like, that would be kind of interesting. It'd be fun. I mean, it's not going to pay real well, but it could be a good end to get started on stuff. Little did I know, <laughs> 15 years, 14 years later, whatever it's been. Um, so I went and did the interview, and at some point, either right before the interview or after, the director came back and said, oh, yeah, by the way, this is now a full-time position with benefits and everything like that. I'm like, well, super. Um, and the journalism thing actually helped because they saw that and knew that about me just from my brief stint at the paper here in town. And they were like, well, uh, we had a newsletter years ago and we dropped it because the newspaper used to have a column where they'd have like library news. But then of course, as the newspaper got smaller and squeezed more things out, that was one of the first things to go. So they were going, well, we'd really like you to restart our newsletter. And so sure, I don't know anything about that, but I'll try it. Why not? Um, which is usually what I wind up doing with everything. So that's, that's how I, how I write too. Um, so I got into that and eventually that part of the career became doing the technical services aspect, which is actually processing and linking the books to get them into the electronic system so they can be checked out by everybody. Um, and then a few years ago, my boss was ready to retire and she encouraged me to apply for her job. So I did and I got it. So Fantastic. How long have you been doing that now, public library I, director? Three years as of July 1st. So three years and change. Okay. Okay. And what exactly does that job entail? Like you've already mentioned uh, finding, uh, you know, pieces of toilet yeah. paper in the CDs <laughs> or the cigarette butts <laughs> in the CDs. But like, what are some of the benefits of, of, of the job? Like, what do you get to do sharing well, stories with readers? Yeah. As the, you know, as the director, one of my primary roles is to oversee the book selection for the library, what books we actually wind up ordering and paying for. And also if books are donated, deciding whether we're going to put those in or not. Um, I give a lot of freedom to just because we've done this in the past and we've come to trust their judgment. You know, our different children, we have a teen librarian and a children's librarian and they select their books and order them. So I don't vet every single one, but I know enough of their judgment. We have enough conversations that I'm confident in what they select for us to have in the library. Myself and my assistant director, who has been our longtime front desk circulation person, we do the bulk of, we do all of the ordering for adults, um, fiction and nonfiction there. So really part of the job is I get these book catalogs and review catalogs and I read through them and find cool books that I want to put in. Um, keeping in mind primarily, not just what I want to see, but I know this author gets a lot of readers. I need to get the next book. Um, whether it's a popular series or whether it's somebody who releases a standalone once every two or three years, but every time they do, there's a big draw of readers. I'm like, okay, I know I got to get that one because the last time we did, we had X amount of people who read it. Um, so that's a good and heavy influence on things. Um, and again, like I said, when people donate books, then my job is to just kind of see, okay, first of all, is the physical condition good enough to have here in the building? Is, especially if it's an older book or a used one. And then, okay, is this going to check out? You know, if I look at it and it's like, eh, we don't hardly ever get anybody checking out this kind of book, I'll probably just put it in the book sale. But if it's on a topic or if it's by an author or similar to an author that we've had a lot of popularity with, for example, if it's a like certain kind of cozy mystery or whatever, and it's like, oh, we've had a lot of those checking out lately. This is a different author we don't have. Let's give it a try. So we'll put it in and just see. And some of it is really experimentation. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Like sometimes when 
librarians pick books, especially if it's a new book by an unknown author, we're really just gambling. Because like, we have no idea whether our local readers are going to like it or not. But we do have the experience, again, of similar books. So that's all we can really base it on. I mean, we can go on reviews somewhat, but sometimes, you know, a book is well-reviewed and we put it on the shelf and it just sits there. Other times, a book hardly has any reviews and we put it on there and it starts flying off the shelf. So it's, some of it, you think you know how you're figuring it out. And other times you're just like, I don't know, you know. Yeah, mm. so uh, that's that's the highlight of that. I mean, I also do budgeting stuff and general payroll, um, some light janitorial work because it's a small library, changing light bulbs, unclogging toilets, things like that. You know, yep. getting band aids for people who injure themselves, usually kids. Paper cut uh, emergencies. Yeah, eh, not too <laughs> many of those, fortunately. <laughs> So you're kind of the curator then is what it sounds like. How do you handle um, when requests come in for new books that maybe you've never heard of? Is there like a threshold of certain number of requests or frequency of someone requesting things? Like how do you kind of screen that? So we don't have any sort of written threshold. We have guidance in our policies for um, collection management, which is several pages long and has all sorts of criteria. But in terms of books, when somebody says, I'd like to have this book to read, the first thing we try to do is we have an interlibrary loan system with all the rest of the libraries in Wyoming. So we can request it and have them read it, especially if it's something like really niche, like a nonfiction book on some obscure topic. We're probably not going to buy it unless, again, we know that other people have been reading similar topics and go, ah, such and such might be, you know, we're small enough that we can come up with like five names and be like, oh, this guy and her and this other kid, they might like this book, so we should get it. Um, with fiction, though, I, I'm pretty, I don't know if libertarian is the right word for it, maybe, pretty libertarian about books when people request them. If somebody says, I want to read this book, can you please buy it for your collection? And it's newer. That means if it's newer, it's harder for us to borrow it from another library because with the interlibrary loan system, they usually informally restrict it to when it's three, four months old or so, they won't send it to you because they're leaving it for their local area, their county to have it first. Um, so a lot of times when it is a new book, I'll just be like, you know what? To me, that's at least one guaranteed circulation. And most times it is in a similar genre to something I know somebody else is reading anyway. So I figure it's worth the gamble to buy it, put it in, and I know at least one person's going to check it out. So then that might go to somebody else checking it out as well. So I'm usually willing to make that bet. But in terms of, you know, we don't have a limit on we'll only take X amount of suggestions or donations this year. Sometimes we just won't because of money reasons. And again, others, it might just be that it might be too obscure of a book and we don't think anybody else is going to check it out. So it's kind of a judgment call that way. It's, it's pretty fluid is the best way to describe it. Steve, I think it's helpful to remember that there are human beings who want to serve their audiences working in the public library system. And I think right. that that's important, mainly because, uh, as you may have known, at least among some news outlets and punditries, uh, there's been some negative press given to particular libraries. And I think that that gets turned uh, wrongfully so into uh, this view of the public libraries altogether are bad or, you know, you got to keep your kids out of there and find the Christian alternative or something. 
And there may be some like larger libraries or libraries in particular regions of the country where they may have a particular event that you don't want to take your kids to and that maybe doesn't belong in the library. But that's no tarnish of the entire concept of library or every right. single library. And that's why I appreciate the balance of recognizing that there is still common grace in this idea that reading is still good, that community reading is still good, and that there are folks like yourself, uh, your employees, and many other libraries where the folks are just really genuinely trying to serve the community. Uh, my wife grew up in a small town where she was, you know, oldest child of a homeschool family. And the public library was where they got their books. They would just all go in there. They would walk out with stacks of books. The librarians loved them and they loved them back. And I think to this day, there's a public library out there in West Texas with a reading room named after my wife's dad. Uh, nice. who died tragically in the late 90s and was a beloved member of the community. And you, you find that just this, this common space that to me represents what we are supposed to do as human beings created by God. A few episodes ago, Zach and I were talking about the movie theaters and the common grace and the idea of showing up in a public space to enjoy visual storytelling together. Well, the library is just the book version of that. Yeah, uh, it's even better if you're reading books together, you know, even uh, finding, you know, little uh, relics left over by the previous reader. There's a little <laughs> bit of a human connection there, you know, because human beings can be, be kind of gross and weird. And just so long as you're not you know, putting pollution in the book or marking up the margins or anything like that, uh, then you still know, hey, this book was enjoyed by someone else. Uh, I'm reading what someone else has read. Like there's a fandom out there, even if I've not met them. Uh, but then there's also other ways that libraries promote this kind of community reading. Uh, how does that work uh, at the Buffalo Library where you are? Well, you know, we try to put out different kinds of books on display, of course. And, you know, this is where a lot of libraries have run into some troubles because the books they select to put on display, basically, no matter what the topic is, somebody else doesn't like it without getting too specific on things. And we all know where that is. But it's, I think people sometimes mistake the idea that because libraries are putting out books on display means it's not necessarily that we like them. Like we really try hard to divest our personal opinions on books from the books that we have or the books that we put out on display. For example, you know, we've got a display out this week that my assistant director did that's all on things that are related to, because it's Labor Day weekend. We put out books that are related to like the labor movement in general over the years. And so we probably got like, you know, 16, 20 books that are out on this table with some American flag decorations and things like that, you know, to draw people's attention to it. And yeah, just the union story and all that. And how well, you get the union Labor Day. story, the history of it, you know, yeah. maybe some fiction books that revolve around unions and things that happen with them, things like that. But it's not like we're passing a judgment call when we put that out in particular on we think unions are good, bad, indifferent, whatever. It's like, this is what we have about them. Here it is. Read it if you want to. You're not obligated to read it. If you don't like it, you can kind of roll your eyes and keep moving on. Um, so we're always trying to emphasize that we've got our books out there for the public to read, and we're trying to provide things for all segments of the population to read because we don't know how many people in our community who have you know like what percentage are of what mindset or things like that you really have no idea no matter what voting roles tell you and things like that and it's not our job to try to figure that out our job is mostly to get the books that we think people are going to like to read they check them out and read them they 
hopefully bring them back to us. That's the part we always have to work on. <laughs> so yeah, it's really this shared kind of community sense of we're we're in the community, we're part of it, and we're trying to get you what you want to read so that you can have this experience of coming in and finding the thing you're looking for without, and in most cases, you know, emphasizing a little bit that you wouldn't have to go to the extra expense of buying all these books you want to read. That's something we, we talk about a lot too with the public. It occurs to me that, uh, Christian, if you're trying to uh, read up on the opposition, a public library would be the best place if they already have the book to uh, read the book, to know what's in it, to understand what someone else who's different from you believes without actually paying for the book. So boycotters, here's your chance. <laughs> right? Use the, public, use the public library boycotters. Come on. Yes, exactly. So, now you're not paying the author. Uh, you've not given them the clicks. Uh, you've not uh, given them see? the extra. The there extra you go. Bill. Yeah, it's a good idea because there's there's a number of books that have been popular the last few years that I just have no interest in reading. And yet, uh, I mean, I've read tons of book reviews about some of these books. I'm not going to go into all that. But but then I thought, well, at some point, maybe I actually should read the book just to kind of hear the the author in his own voice or her own voice uh, make whatever point it is. But yes, I, I don't want to own these books. I, I don't even want to Kindle own the books. But uh but it would be nice to, um, yeah, actually get a copy and a library is a good way. But I've even thought about this for a bunch of not, there's a, a number of novels that I have like on my, you know, Amazon wish list, where I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'm actually going to like this book. I don't know if I want to spend 10 or $20 on it. I probably should put this on my library, you know, checklist or wish list because, uh, if this book is kind of a letdown, if it bombs, like I, I just don't want it taking up space on my shelf. I usually, for the most part, I reserve bookshelf space for books I know I want to keep or that I know I'm going to want to read, you know, multiple times or that yeah. I'm going to want my kids to read. Or And so I, I think that's very much a good use for the library. Speaking of science fiction, let's jump over to our third sponsor for this episode. A bit of a robotic sponsor here. It is the novel Lost Bits just out this summer from prolific sci-fi author Carrie Neitz, friend of the podcast and our next sponsor. Here's the back cover description. The last thing K404 remembers is a happy home with the human child L whose care is his primary purpose. So when he wakes up in a landfill of tossed away technology, his only thought is to reunite with his family. This world is not his own, though. It's a wasteland of desolate buildings, flying metal discs, and monstrosities that keep themselves active by stealing another bot's power. How did the world get this way, and why was he discarded? Hampered by imperfect memory, an obsolete body, and limited battery life, 404 sets out to find his home. Joined by other castaways, he faces off against scavengers and monsters, only to encounter greater threats. Pursued, outsmarted, and manipulated on every side, 404 teeters on the brink of annihilation. His only choice of survival? Those bits of himself, the connections, he hasn't lost. We reviewed Lost Bits, and we said that it boldly leads fans out of dead wastelands, exploring the nature of humankind through the lenses of a human creation. That's an excerpt from our Fuller Lorehaven review. We'll put those links in the show notes, as well as purchase links for Lost Bits, which I understand is also coming out in audiobook pretty soon. Just go to the show notes for episode 128 or go to the top of the page at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So here's a question, though, that I, I it might be going through our listeners mind right now. You mentioned kind of different books that get promoted or kind of spotlighted during different seasons of the year. Um, is there ever a chance for like Christian books, whether fiction or nonfiction, 
you know, depending on the season uh, to get the spotlight? Well, I think it really depends on the library. And so here's the thing. When it comes, we've come up with this a little bit ourselves because, you know, as a library in a conservative state in a rural area, we've had complaints about some of the books. And the thing we always lean on is, you know, it's a bit ironic because some of the argument comes from the, it's less of the, I don't want my kid to read this, or it's the, I don't want anyone to oh, read this. Yes. And so it's like, okay, well, look, you know, I can commiserate from a personal position as to how you're feeling about that. But I, again, when it comes to reading books, I'm pretty libertarian and I think anybody should be able to read any book they want to. And so when you come to a library, a library position like that, when we have people who are complaining about, I don't think you should have a book with X kind of thing in it. It's too bad. You don't have more books that have say a Christian perspective like that. My response always to them is, I tried to put some in there, but also I don't know about all of them. So I need you to suggest them to me. And this is something we try to build too with the community of, I understand you don't like this particular kind of book. Probably it's not for you. Might be for somebody else. But if you have a book that you like that is from a Christian perspective, I would like to know about it so that I can put it in because I'm hearing from them that they know people who would want to read it. And for me, just from a cold, hard facts point of view, that's more circulation numbers for my library. So, the trick is that we try not to do displays necessarily of specific ideological or religious or spiritual bents. So, for example, it's kind of hard for me to do a display and say, like, these are the clean reads necessarily. Now, we make up lists for parents and kids and say, if your kid and your family has a set of values where you want to avoid some of the things that are showing up, especially in teen books lately. Here's some suggested areas we can look. Come ask us. We've got some really good suggested ones for you. But I can't really set aside an area that's like just the clean reads versus the not clean reads. Mm -hmm. um, now, as for setting up displays, you know, I've never actually thought about that before because most of our displays tend to be pretty it's the word agnostic, I guess you could say. Like the only real display uh, I think that has any uh, real specific political or cultural bent that we do is we usually do a display during Black History Month. That's the only one I can think of. The rest of them are pretty, you know, like at Christmas time, we have Christmas books out. At Thanksgiving, we have Thanksgiving books out. Labor Day, you know, we did the Labor Day display. Yeah. Um, a few weeks ago when we had our primaries, we did a display about elections like anything about elections, even like bare bones kind of didactic history books to uh, fictional uh, movies that involve elections and things like that. So, so I hope that answers your question a little bit. It's not like we can't do it, but like with most everything else in life, when you bring religion and faith into it, it gets a lot messier. Oh, sure. And I'm, yeah. of the, I'm of the opinion that libraries should try to be as agnostic as they possibly can. Now, mm -hmm. again, having a display that's like, you know, talking about elections because elections are important and vital to the running of the country, that's something you could take a stand on and, you know, put it out there like that. I also think some of it has to be reading your audience a little bit because while I won't avoid a book because of content, I might not get it if I don't think anybody's going to read it. Mm, yeah. And that's, again, part of our judgment call process of, you know, if I've heard a lot of people in the community grumbling, 
And let's say we have a book with a similar topic that never gets checked out. And then that author writes a new book that's raised some controversy. We're probably not going to get it just because the other book hasn't checked out. I mean, it's not, I really try to be as just cold, hard, factual as I can yeah. about that stuff. So it's not seen as taking sides one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm totally with you here about there, there's a vast difference between I don't want to see here or read this to no one should be able to say or write this, you know, topic. I don't agree with that ideology or that, that mindset either because it can always be used against you. Exactly. you know, it, it, it's like creating a monster and then losing control of it and then it turning on you and devouring you. I think that's just never a good you know, mindset to have. But at the same time, I, I think what distresses a lot of Christians now is like when I go, and this is more a bookstore thing, but like there, there's a very popular bookstore in town where um, during June, it, the entire front of the store was Pride Month. Uh-huh. Um, during October, the entire front of the store was witchcraft and not like cutesy little <laughs> Halloween stories, but it's like, here is how to summon demons, like how to books. And it's just like the thing they said Harry Potter was. Yeah, actually. Right. Actually, <laughs> yeah. this is the actual. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, then that is religious. That. that is literally yeah. a, an endorsement of, a, of right. paganism, of religion. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, see, if that was me and if we, were, we were working in a library and it wasn't me in charge and we had a display up about witchcraft, I'd be all like, well, you've got one religion up. Let's have a display on Catholicism. Let's have one on evangelicalism. It's going crazy let's have one here on at Easter and Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be nuts. So that's yeah. why, again, that's one of the reasons that we don't do that is because right. then you just open up this whole box full of everything you'd have to display to treat it as fairly as you could. Yeah. Well, you mentioned too, Steve, the practical considerations behind this. I mean, you're not just there. I mean, I'm sure that uh, even in a larger city or a you know more liberal area or whatever, I mean, there's lots of practical considerations there. Is this book uh, circulating? You know, what's our budget? Uh, what are the needs of the community? Which books are getting borrowed and which are not? What's uh, gathering cobwebs on the shelf? I mean, I'm sure that among some librarians as anywhere, there's some ideological crusading going on, and oh, certainly yeah. the worst cases of those uh, tend to rise to the top, and then they get in the news. But I think it helps Christians to steel man this whole scenario and understand uh, the best points there, which are the ones you're articulating, is that there are practical considerations here, and right. among those is the uh, you know the snowball effect of well, if we put together, try to put together a list or a display of clean reads. Uh, someone's still going to object to that. And, right. Uh, I and mean, then I'm, by the same token, somebody would be come up to me and be like, okay, you've got clean reads. Why do you not have a list of dirty reads? Dirty reads, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds funny, yeah. but you could to- I could totally see it happening. And then and I'd so be like, okay, well, I guess I got to do... I want some dirty reads, realistic books. Basically, I, want some I mean... Gore and some sex, yeah, man. It's not the young people who are reading Fifty Shades of Grey. No. I'm just going to throw no, that out it's, there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <not>. that's, uh, <laughs> we ought to have a whole episode sometime. Like, how, how did you deal with that whole thing? And what, what's going on with that? I don't know. That would be interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, just as a quick side note, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, we just treated it. I, I wasn't in charge at the time, but the, my director just treated it as another book. Just, you know, just went out on the normal bookshelf with all the rest of the books. And everybody knew what it was. And it's yeah. like, but that's kind of how a lot of it gets treated. Yeah. Really, as you try to, I mean, I know that the content of books is changing a lot over the past, especially the past 10, 20 years. But the problem for libraries, I think, has been what role do we play in determining what content other people get to see? Right. Because in the past, it wasn't a problem because the publishers were, and I hate to use the word, but the publishers were really self-censoring themselves, self-censoring. But publishers aren't 
they're kind of it's like every anything can go now so the question then is how the library fits into that it's like yeah you don't like that this book has this stuff in it but we didn't write it we didn't publish it we're providing the access in case there's somebody who wants to read it because they might like the author or maybe that's a popular publisher or something like that the fact that the content has changed and be kind of dialed up that's a thing it's like well how much of that is the library's responsibility to police and most librarians are going to come back with a it's not our job to police it right it's a right it's out there and we're the content provider to use a more modern yeah term for well it. and and there's a difference between a library making uh, a library providing access to these books that are controversial or, or whatever versus a library that is outwardly promoting them you know and making it on in in the spotlight like this bookstore i went to but I think that the challenge here for Christians is that we have to, the only way to defeat bad ideas is with better ideas. Yeah. The, the only way to displace bad stories is with better stories. And so it's really a call for Christians and, and others to step up and say, you know what? I can't stop people reading this book. I'm going to write a book or promote a book that is sort of the counter to this and, and maybe a, a direct counter or like, more of a subtle counter. And I, I think that this is uh, a lot more work. It's a lot harder. <laughs> and I, I think that's why the temptation is, oh, I just want to get rid of that book. And, you know, it, it's just not ever going to happen, I think, especially as we said at the beginning, we're in the internet age where people don't even have to go to the library. Exactly. And it's not like the library is the only place people are going to access books that we don't uh, prefer, books that we don't like, books that we wish no one would write or read. But we, you know, we have to sort of step up and, and create the culture that, that we want to see take shape. Yeah, I think it goes back to actually the theme of our last episode here on Fantastical Truth 127 about a code of honor for Christian groups. You need to follow the code of honor in the space that you're in, not necessarily the space that you wish it would be. Uh, and that's why I think it is so necessary for Christians, Christian fans especially, to pray for Christians who are working in the public library uh, trying to reflect common grace there, if not the specific grace of the gospel, you're still reflecting the common grace of you know curating books, finding the best ones, uh, running a budget, uh, all of those sorts of things, managing employees, scrubbing the toilets every once in a while, <laughs> pulling the toilet paper out of the return books, all of that yep. stuff is part of the calling. Uh, if you're looking for more specific Christian books or what you'd call clean reads, I prefer the term wholesome uh, because it's more substantive than absence of content, uh, if you're looking for those, then the location for that ought to be the church library if you can get one. Uh, yeah. We talked about that in episode 117 about uh, people, individuals uh, needing to build a fantastic lending library and possibly uh, going to your church and being able to do that to serve your faith community. So there's a specific need there. Uh, the code of honor, as it were, is a little bit different for a public library. But Zach, you mentioned uh, the need for more new stories uh, to help uh, show uh, more biblical truth or clean reads or whatever you believe in the market, because this really starts with reader demand. Uh, you can't just go to the library and you know make all the demands of them, maybe necessary every once in a while, but if the readers want it, it's going to be an uphill struggle for you. But that leads us then to chapter three of our discussion, Steve, about your stories that you've been making for quite some time now, dozens of titles, and you can see every last one of them in our link in the show notes. 
What leads you, Steve Raza, to create so many fantastical story worlds, uh, starting with the Face of the Deep series way back in the 2000s, uh, and then moving on from that universe (laughs) to many, many others? Uh, You know, my brain just won't (laughs) shut up. (laughs) In fact, uh, Steve Raza, we've been watching him. He has actually finished a new novel while we were recording. Uh, He (laughs) just started it at the very beginning, and I think he's writing the epilogue now. (laughs) Maybe a short story. But uh, no, really... um, yeah, it's just this, I, I don't even know how to describe it. My brain just is constantly churning on these different things I want to play with. I mean, like, there are literally, you know, I've got notes written down on my bulletin board and stuff. There are literally, like, six or eight more books just sitting there that I would hope to eventually do, but I'm probably not going to do anytime soon, maybe more. And it's like, you know, sometimes things are just snippets of ideas, and others are a little more fully formed when they appear in my brain. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to it's hard to explain. I mean, I, I've joked with some people that yes, I understand writer's block, but I don't understand idea block because I can I can get stuck writing something absolutely. But when it comes to coming up with another idea, it's not it's a, it's just a weird weird thing. It's it's really full up here. It's really full. Well, somehow, Steve, we've managed to be booth neighbors at the last several Realm Makers right? conferences, uh, even in Atlantic City uh, just a month or so ago. Uh, but I've spied on you, brother, and I see you like writing on stuff using your word processor uh-huh. like, in the middle of crowded rooms. And I don't know how you do that because I, I need a special sacred space with my music in my headphones. Like I need that in order to try to write a novel. But you just seem always to have uh, have certain sectors of your brain. Uh, devoted to that task space and um, i'm in admiration of that and it's resulted in not just the face of the deep series which is your which is sci-fi series uh, but you've also got uh, some paranormal investigators going on uh, you got some steampunk fantasy going on uh vincent chin uh, mercury hail uh the mercury on or in or you know pre- mercury preposition something is the title structure there yes How, is that seven or eight books now that's kind of your, your it's series four novels and three novellas Okay. Okay. So, yeah. so you can get that. And what is that about? If you can just give a quick uh, pitch. Uh, Mercury there. is like just this mishmash. I think Zach was asking me what kind of inspired Mercury at the beginning there. And really, you know, it's this bizarre combo in my head of reading things like the Harry Dresden series and Monster Hunter International that I mentioned by you know Jim Butcher and Larry Correa, respectively, but also watching things like the X-Files and, of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel universe that I'm constantly consuming. All of that mishmashed up is kind of what informs me when I'm doing this series. I mean, it's, uh, frankly, especially Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., because the whole way of how you fit the stuff around a real world or whatever is always intriguing to me. Um, and, you know, it's it's been a really fun series because it's it's only, most of it, vast majority is only first person, only from his perspective. So it's all just like you're in the character's head all the time. And really, I mean, I'm just pulling a lot of things about my own varying levels of sarcasm thing and injecting them into this guy. Uh, you know, our respective love of pizza and things like that. But yeah, that's that's kind of how it got formulated. And so you've you've got this guy, this young guy who basically is working for this secretive foundation that by day does all sorts of good things in the community, but by night has him on staff to go slay these monsters that show up. And the whole gist of the series is that as things pick up and accelerate and these uh, dimensional rifts or whatever are becoming more and more 
frequent and dangerous. He's kind of transitioning from he sort of goofs off most of the time, but he takes it somewhat seriously too. He's getting more and more responsibility, more and more things. Are, it's getting tomorrow. Uh, Back to the Future is getting heavy, and you know he's got to take more responsibility for himself, then for other people, then for like the organization itself. And yeah, it's a lot more on his plate. He's just got to step up to uh, prevent various world disasters. But I also like. I love things where you get the chance to show super powered individuals doing things that are just kind of goofing off with their powers. Like I was not above him using his weapon, the pulsar stave to heat up a slice of pizza when it was too cold. <laughs> and you know, other characters who are the serious characters are appalled and he's just like, whatever. That's a, that absolutely would happen. Yeah, it would happen. <laughs> That's what I like about doing it. Well, going back in time, we started off with the Face of the Deep series, yeah. uh, which is of a genre that, to me, still seems increasingly rare. Now, we were talking earlier about Star Trek, which is atheist in space. Uh, some people would say that Star Wars is a kind of Buddhist in space. Yeah, sort of. A uh, little bit, yeah. Now, Carrie Neitz, our friend Carrie Neitz, uh, for a while there, he, he's been having <laughs> some Muslims in space, and then, of course, Amish vampires and zombies uh-huh. and werewolves in space. Uh-huh. But you've written one of the few stories that is Christians in space, uh, which is the Face of the Deep series. And I personally Basically. resonate so hard with that because I love me some stories about Christians in space, and perhaps someday we'll find out more about that. But I enjoyed those books because you've got this far future. I mean, it's it's hundreds or thousands of years in the future where knowledge of the Bible has just been kind of lost. And then you f- have one young man, uh, Baden, who, in the words of at least one version of the back cover, picked up the wrong book. And that yep. launches this whole space adventure. It was an initial, uh, really a two-part novel uh, from the predecessor of Enclave Publishing, uh, which is previously known as Marcher Lord Press. Uh, how did that story come about? Like, what inspired that? Uh, where you write a type of book that I just don't see that often. You know, I really do think it was a mix of, like I said, coming out of college and reading uh, the Timothy Zahn books, which is where I discovered those. And then sometime right at the end of college, or right when I got out, was when Kathy Tyre's books came out. And as I started working on an idea for a space opera series, I had been reading Chris Wally's Lamb Among the Stars. So. As I had done that, I'd known I wanted to do something Christian-related because I'd actually written a novel while I was in college and then self-published it right after college. It's not very good, but it was okay. I mean, it's okay. You know, it's not terrible, but it's not great either, is it? All right. But that was really my first experiment with doing it because I wanted to do something Christian-related like that. And then as I was doing that, I kind of stumbled onto these other two. I was like, wait a minute, this could actually be maybe legit. <laughs> so I spent several years working on that series and kind of putting these themes into there. Um, and, you know, it was funny because it was a really slow going thing because I had been working in the journalism field. And so I was constantly, constantly writing, writing, writing everything. And then I got home and you don't want to write for the rest of the day because that's what i just did yeah, all day for there. work I don't yep. want to do, yeah i'm sure you can commiserate with that but i so i had probably about the first third of what would eventually become those two books done when i lost my job then within nine months of that is when i finished the rest so just by virtue of i was no longer doing that it was just this kind of freedom of you know it was very clearly god being like okay now that you're done complaining and whining about the fact that you lost your job here's what you need to do with that i'm like oh he's like "Uh uh-huh see 
So, and then, um, you know, I tried the traditional route of sending it out to some agents and some publishers, but it was really new. I'd done like no research at all on the proper way to do it other than reading a few books. And uh, some of which went at our library. <laughs> I kind of stumbled upon Marcher Lord Press and had submitted it. I got the note back actually not too far off this time of the year. I think it was like July. I was on vacation actually in New Jersey, Ocean City, same place I was going to this year before Realm Makers, and got the note back from the publisher saying, hey, we'd like to publish this book yours, but it's too long, so we're going to cut it in half and have it be two books. And me not knowing anything, I'm like, well, I didn't realize that people didn't like cliffhangers. I, you know, rookie mistake. But at, all I heard was, instead of one book, you'll have two. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, the, so it's, they they do gotten ahead of the game of uh, splitting uh, the book into yeah, two parts yeah, in order to yeah. maximize. Yeah. And so then from there, you know, I did I did uh, Broken Sight, which was a follow up to that. And then after that, you know, with different various things that happened, I started just kind of going, well, maybe I can write some other things that aren't base opera. Maybe I should try some other things. So then I did the uh, the Sark Brothers, the steampunk, couple of books there. Um, I tried my hand at fantasy, and I have to give credit to Carrie Neitz for encouraging me to do first person writing because I never would have done it if he hadn't pushed me to do that he's like your writing's really good you should do first person yeah like, he really uh, likes okay. the first person he does he's really good at it and uh so a lot of kudos to him for encouraging me to do that because that really impacted obviously impacted my writing going forward from there uh and so then from there it just kind of spiraled because i would just kept kind of trying new things and people would ask me if i was interested in writing new things and my default reaction was okay so it's like those stereotypical movies or TV shows you see where the character who never says yes to things starts saying yes to everything. That's, <laughs> that's how I wound up. It's the Jim Carrey <laughs> movie. I, I yeah, yes. Oh, Yes Man. Yeah. There you go. Yes that's, Man. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. well, maybe not the best, ro- maybe not the best role model. Yes but, you know. God. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I love the first book the, of the Face of the Deep series. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like Fahrenheit 451 in space. With, with, yeah, with the whole, that's a good way uh, to put it. Kind of a whole space opera, military sci-fi intergalactic uh conflict happening so um that was fun and I, i've recommended it to a lot of people um uh, because it, it's sort of like hey did you know that there are christian sci-fi books out there and that uh that, that take both of those words seriously and, and so <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a great book i totally recommend it. thanks oh, and they sell really well at the homeschool conferences too uh steve and i've been at uh, some of those events and uh, folks will enjoy them a lot you know especially i mean it's a very homeschool friendly premise it's it's somebody finds a lost copy of the bible in space and also there's a lot of spaceships and wars and lasers and mechs yeah. and things oh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely something that is a is a is a good solid pitch there. Uh, it, it's also I would say uh, interestingly, Steve, on your website, and if people go to that link in the show notes, they'll see in your repertoire uh, you've grouped the books that you've written under PG stories, yep. as well as PG thirteen stories, which I found interesting. I and just that me that's to- because I learned about audience. <laughs> yes. Well, this is just part of finding your way along. You know, you're oh, you're, yeah. you're out in space. You know, you're hauling cargo around, and then uh, every once in a while, it's just difficult to uh, get a hold of a lost book and some lost information like that. But uh, somehow you've managed to pull it off anyway. And so you've got PG stories, and you also got what you've labeled as PG thirteen, uh, which includes the Deception Fleet series, where you actually have a co-author. And I'm less familiar with that, I must say, but it's one of those instances where somebody else comes along who's got like this whole 
sci-fi universe, like military sci-fi they've put together. Uh, what is that series about? So a guy named Daniel Gibbs, he wrote a series called, I, I think it's called Echoes of War. I hope I'm not, I, that's either the name of the first book or the name of the series, I forget. But basically he's written what he calls the um, Terran Diaspora books, which is basically like, the best summary of it is that it's like base Christians and Judeo-Christian faith versus space communists. That's the best way I can put it. Summary. It's a really hey, big, I'm huge, there. Ex- I'm big there. huge, expansive world. So you have the you have the Terran Coalition, which is basically the Terran Coalition is an alliance of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim faiths in this one coalition of planets or whatever, uh, pretty tightly tied together. It's not like a loosey goosey alliance. And then you have the League of Soul, which is basically like hardcore communist, socialist, whatever, took over the rest of that area of space. And they've been at war for a while. You have different things going on like that. So he has this seven-book series which explores the war itself. Um, he also has a side series that he had co-authored with somebody else that is kind of like, uh, it goes alongside that series, and it's about this group of independent systems who aren't ruled by anybody, and either of those two big nations, and how they figure into the war and help out and things like that. Um, he had actually put out a request a couple of years ago about, hey, look, I'm looking to expand this. I'm looking for another co-author so we can write some more. And me, of course, being like, yeah, sure, I don't have anything else to do, I guess, was <laughs> was like, there's the eye roll inserted there. Um, I kind of talked about it, like, well, because I had written a, co-written a book before, but this co-writing was very different. It's more of once we get the first book planned out and done together, I mean, I basically just wrote the whole thing. And he signed off on it. Now, the first book was a lot of heavy, you know, I'd send him chapters and chunks of it. And he would say, no, don't do that. Yes, do this. No, that's not how that character react. Yes, that's correct. That's how that character react, et cetera, et cetera. Getting the technical terms right. Um, getting more of the military uh, protocol right, which I'm happy to say I didn't completely goof up in the face of the deep, but I still didn't get exactly right either because he corrected me on it. A bunch of it which is good always learning um so deception fleet is like a it's basically like tom clancy's op center feel to it if anybody's familiar with that series you've got a small team of military and civilian spies or agents doing these top secret missions while you're also seeing like a bit of the politics behind the scene with the president and his cabinet and you're also seeing the other military aspects like their stealth ships and the missions they run and the main ship the uh, csv oxford which is like the spy base ship Um, kind of like the disguised ships the u.s military used for signal interception and things like that Um, and so it all kind of fits together into this covert action spy world political intrigue thing so it's like a cold war that's going on there's not a the war is over the treaty signed the enemy's defeated but there's still a lot of sneaky stuff going on around there and so really the deception fleet series follows this team of five operatives and their interactions with each other and you know there's different threads like the main character and his conflict with his family especially with his parents and you know running their family homestead back on the planet when he's always off and away uh the female spy who's one of his good friends um there's this whole thread about this is one thing i did differently the thread of their friendship like their friend their pals 
And so, you know, it feels like there might be some hints that there's, you know, the stereotypical developing into a romance. But I'll leave it unspoilered as to how that all shakes out with his personal relationships and things. So I tried to play things a little differently. Um, yeah, so it's just a different story world. But the reason I have it under the PG-13 thing is Dan is very much of the opinion of, on the one hand, he doesn't want to shove a lot of gratuitous things in just for gratuitous sake. But on the other hand, as somebody who's dealt with the military a lot, he knows that the military in general, lots of people swear a lot. So we didn't do that with these, but it's not completely stripped out either. So that's why I say PG-13. There is, I mean, really, the biggest difference between that and my other books is there is some of that profanity in there, but it's really based on the situation. So if it's a really intense battle and things are going on and people are dying, you might see some of those. If it's a strat, if it's a strategy session between several people, you're probably going to see hardly nothing. And it really varies throughout the series. So that's why I have that caveat on there. That that brings us back to the beginning now. Should there be rating systems in libraries? Oh, you know, for, for oh, library geez. books. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that's a whole other episode. Yeah, but, I, I, just, uh, I just want to know what it's like for <laughs> Steve being a library director and then also knowing that he's writing some of the books that you may be borrowing from your local library. I mean, you get you've got a double life there, but it's just completely out in the open, uh, like Iron Man. Yeah, right. Basically, <laughs> like, here's my address. No, it's pretty fun. Uh, you know, sometimes people just come in and be like, "I haven't read any of your books yet. What should I start with?" And then I'm like, "Oh, gee, wow." Uh, well, it depends on your personality, right? So do I have. I mean, it's, you've heard me talk like. to people at Realm Makers. So I'm like, "Well, what do you want to read? What do you like to read? Do you like space opera? If you don't like space opera, don't look at these books. If you like smart mouth monster fighting guys, let's look at these books down here. That kind of thing. Um, and if yeah, you it's, like it's monotheists versus communists. <laughs> Go look at it. It's like, how, yeah. it's like, do you like, and then I go, well, now I go like, okay, do you like your space opera more like Star Wars or like Star Trek? And they're like, oh, kind of like, you know, I like Battlestar Galactica. It's like, okay, well, you want Deception Fleet then. It's like, mm. oh, but I really like lighthearted Star Wars. Like, okay, you want the face of the deep. It's, it's kind of fun like that. But I mean, yeah, I do have some interaction with people when they come in sometimes. Sometimes they're just finding out that I have books. Other times they're like, hey, you know, I've never read your stuff before. What would you recommend? For me to read so it is really kind of bizarre because i'll be talking about other authors and then i'll be talking about me and kind of have to remember not to refer to me in the third person don't <laughs> don't get that seinfeld level of weirdness going on well i know that uh, one of my wife's favorite books of yours is for us humans uh, oh yeah last that's I probably one of my favorites the uh, enclave so it we're is, also yeah. planning an easter egg for uh, our next guest here uh, the steve saga uh, I, I want to I want a quick pitch of for us humans because you've got humans and aliens and a little uh, Christian philosophy and stuff going yeah. on there. And I wish to stress that in by my definition, Steve, everything you write is Christian fiction, whether or not it would be labeled that way, because True. you are the Christian hidden in plain sight, even if the characters are not uh, acting or professing in that way. But for us humans goes a little bit, uh, as he said, it gets a little heavier, it goes a little deeper, but also has this uh, kind of whimsical story of aliens living among, well, us humans. Yeah, so with For Us Humans, it's an alternate version of our timeline. The biggest difference being in 2001, roughly, uh, the aliens showed up. And instead of the normal conquest thing, they kind of were like, look, I played a little bit off of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Instead of blowing up Earth to build a highway, they show up and are like, look, your system is at a really sweet spot to build our corridors that we use our portals that we use for uh warp drive or whatever and they're like i mean 
we'll just kind of absorb you as like this kind of second rate protectorate into our empire. We don't really care what you're doing here, but you know, we got some rules and we'll pay you too. It's just kind of our leasing fee or whatever. So it's like we're more of a, because I thought about it. I'm like all these alien invasion stories, the aliens show up and want to destroy and wreck things, even while they supposedly want our real estate. And I'm like, well, maybe the aliens just are, you know, more practical and are willing to pay for things. <laughs> and humans, of course, are like, hey, money, that's great. And so <laughs> that was really the in joke there with that one. So the story itself takes place probably about, I think it's like 15 years later. The aliens have been there for a while, so it's all just normal. Nobody thinks it's weird. And I think one of the first scenes I have is while the main character, who is an art recovery specialist, who hunts down stolen paintings and sculptures and things like that and gets them back. Um, he pulls up to a place and he's grumbling because there's the handicapped parking access spot, but right next to it is two or three spots where only the aliens can park because their social hierarchy a little bit up mm-hmm. above the humans now. It's like, ugh, great, those guys. Um, <laughs> you know, just because humans like to complain about things. I, I see this other. happening, a little intersectionality with uh, with aliens there. Wow. <laughs> so it's it's funny because, you know, we have... It really turns into this buddy cop thing. At its heart, that's what it is. You know, you've got the hero who is a this undercover art recovery specialist, and you've got an alien who does a similar kind of job for the alien empire. And they have to team up to get back this sculpture that's of huge cultural significance to one of the races that is like the big cheese at the top of the uh, alien empire there and this leads of course to the weirdness part of it and the philosophical part of it, which is that the human is best described as a backslidden christian who's just down on himself and the alien is really intrigued by all this jesus stuff and wants to know more which of course the human doesn't want to talk about at all and so that's where most of your conflict is mm. um, and i did mess with a lot of, i put a couple of things in there about like you know trying to hypothesize on the impact of that on Christianity. And I went pretty hard on it in terms of I was of the opinion, maybe cynically, that you would see a lot of people drop their faith like a hot potato. And on the one hand, I may have been wrong about that. But on the other hand, I have practical experience and personal experience with people literally leaving a church because they didn't like things like banner decorations or the pastor's attitude when he preaches. So to my mind, I was like, if people have left churches because of what we consider little stinky things like that, how much more would some people who maybe were a lot weaker in their faith might freak out and abandon things if they couldn't explain how sentient alien governments that are now at the top of the food chain impact what they what they view as correct Christianity. So yeah, that's where it gets heavy on that aspect. I always say this, but I, I think it's now is the time for the church to really develop uh, the, the Protestant church, because I think the Catholic church is a little bit ahead of us here. I think the the evangelical church really needs to develop a robust theology of of aliens, of all kinds of other weird possibilities, and even just what does it mean if humans travel the solar system and, and yeah. create colonies on the moon or Mars or whatever? Like, How is that going to affect our views on things because I think we, we hold a lot of things just sort of uh, we have a lot of unspoken expectations of what's going to happen in the future. And so let's just put those expectations on the page and analyze them because uh, apparently there were people uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s that thought uh, humans would never go to the moon before, you know, Jesus returned. And so, and now we're at the place where humans might go to Mars and live there and then have children there. 
Um, and so what's going to happen, you know, what, what what's going to happen to the church's view of that? So I, I think we should all just talk very openly about it. And stories are a fantastic way to help us do that. We do, however, need to keep, at least in some way, I mean, keep discerning for sure. Obviously, stay grounded in a Christian worldview. But whether you're finding these stories at a public library or at a, a bookstore, at the homeschool conference, or just online, maybe at steveraza.com, uh, keep an open mind about some of these issues. Like, work through them, whether they're PG or PG-13 or whatever. And I think uh, the public library and sharing stories amongst ourselves are both great ways to do that. As we draw to a close here, uh, you can find out more information about Steve, of course, at stevearaza.com. That's Steve, R-Z-A-S-A. Any other ways that folks can follow your work on uh, social media, Steve, including uh, whatever projects you have coming up next? That's really the biggest one right there. I will share stuff on that. If you go there, I have a newsletter that I put out once every three, four weeks or so-ish when I've got new projects and things coming up and information. So you can sign up for the newsletter on there as well. All right, so steveraza.com, all links in the show notes. Steve, thank you for being our fantastical first guest for the Steve Saga. Uh, We wish you well, and uh, now I suppose you can just tap your comm badge and beam back up to the ship and warp on out of here. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. All right, bon voyage. Godspeed, brother. Well, to you, our listener, we would love to hear your library story. What's a great moment you've had at your local lending library? What are some treasures you've found? What are some uh, interesting situations you've been in? What's been your favorite bookmark to use or find in a book? Uh, send us your note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment on social media or in our guild. Speaking of which, we've got a great comment from Abigail who shared some encouragement about Our previous episode, 127, about the Code of Honor, Abigail says, quote, good episode going over the Code of Honor. It was both helpful and insightful. Not groundbreaking, perhaps, but interesting to go over why things are done how they are around here. Lots of good thoughts about how to read and discuss courteously as fans, end quote. Well, thank you, Abigail, and I'm glad that was helpful to you. I think that going over stuff that isn't groundbreaking is one of the most important things we can do uh, to make sure that we add on to the existing foundation. Uh, In that case, we're not trying to build something new. We're trying to strengthen the foundation for what's already been built, uh, the ground that's already been broken. Uh, That's important to prevent drift. Uh, Continuing the foundation metaphor, I think you can actually go to the famous parable by Jesus Christ himself who urged people to build on the solid rock and not shifting sand. It may be easier to break ground in shifting sand, but it takes a lot of work to build on the solid rock. So we're just trying to follow the example of Christ there and the example of any uh, biblical organization or especially a local church uh, that tries to ground its foundations for belief and practice uh, in the word of God. So appreciate that very much, Abigail. Meanwhile, at Lorehaven, we continue to try to build on the foundation for the guild. That is our Discord server, invitation only, but it's free to subscribe at lorehaven.com. And then we send you that invitation to a long-expected party. This week, we're going on an adventure in the Lorehaven Guild by reading J.R.R. Tolkien's classic fantasy, The Hobbit. That actually should have started on Labor Day, Lord willing. Uh, We're going to catch up with Mr. Bilbo Baggins, who lives in a hole in the ground and then is visited by a wizard who invites him on an adventure, which Bilbo does not want to have. Thank you very much. Good morning. Until all the dwarves show up and start eating all of Bilbo's food and threatening to break the dishes and take him on an adventure to recover lost gold 
lost in the mountain, guarded by a dragon. It's a great story. If you have not read it in a while, or especially if you've never read it, you will want to join this quest led by Elijah David. Get that link in our show notes for our Hobbit book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. Also, last week on Friday, we had an advanced review of The Change. That's the final book in the Chase Runner series from Mountain Brook Fire by Bradley Caffey. We have now reviewed every volume in that series. We got a big fan on our Lorehaven review team. That's a good place to be, uh, especially for this series, uh, which uh, she has really enjoyed. So go check out that review. Again, links in the show notes. We've got more reviews coming up and, of course, more episodes in the Steve Saga next on Fantastical Truth. The Steve Saga continues. We're going to go from spaceship superheroes and a little steampunk to a spy thriller. Well, okay, maybe not a spy thriller, but we will have a certain secret agent man arriving in the studio. He's the one who's helped put together a lot of your favorite books in both fantastical fiction as well as nonfiction. He leads his own literary agency, not so secret agency there. And he's also the publisher of Enclave Publishing. Steve Lobby will be our next guest on Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, whether you enjoy the public library, whether you haven't been there in a while, maybe you have, as Zach said, lots of great memories of finding great books there, just as I have. I think that it's appropriate to thank God for this resource, even in a world that has been corrupted by sin, where there may be issues with the library where you live. We can appreciate faithful Christians who find great stories in the library or create great stories on their own, as a Steve Raza has done. That's something for which we can thank God as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>